In this episode, we'll interview Einar Fossett, the founder of Tiny Seed, a big and well-known B2B SaaS accelerator, especially for bootstrap founders. And he's also the founder of Discretion Capital, a really amazing M&A boutique for SaaS owners with one to 10 million in ARR. My name is Alexei and I help B2B SaaS founders scale. Now on this episode, I'm super privileged to have Einar because he's not on every podcast out there. So it's a super unique opportunity. And Tiny Seed also owns MicroConf, which is the largest community for B2B bootstrapped founders out there. And obviously having so much data, one of the points we'll discuss is why did he launch Tiny Seed instead of a venture studio, for example. And then finally, one of the other topics we talk about is how SaaS is performing this year versus the last few years and how valuations are different from private equity and strategics this year, for example, compared to the, the last few years. So enough of me rambling, let's dive into the episode. Hi, Einar. How's it going? It's going well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, awesome to have you here. Cool. So in terms of introduction, you are originally from Norway, then did your PhD in computer science at Newcastle University in the UK. And then you were one of the OGs in 2009 going through YC. And then shortly after, less than a year, exiting your first business. Then, you know, after a period of other businesses, exiting your second business and then um, creating Discretion Capital, an M&A boutique, and then shortly after, pretty much, uh, launching Tiny Seed, which is one of the best B2B SaaS accelerators out there and has also uh, two funds already, and you're about to raise a third fund, right? Yeah, that sounds right. I mean, uh, you summed up the last 25 years of my life pretty well. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Cool. So for the viewers, uh, obviously, let's dive a bit deeper into the details. Um, how was it to be an OG in YC? Was it already that big back then? You know, can you describe how it kind of worked back then? Sure. I mean, it was it was very different. Well, so I don't really know what it's like now because it's been such a long time. You know, more than more than a decade. But certainly, like it's very from when I talk to other people about what it's like now. Certainly, what it was like in the last few years when there was like five hundred companies per batch, whatever. Um, when I was going through, I think it was something on the order of like 15, somewhere between 15 and 20 companies. It was still sort of like in this warehouse that was mostly owned by, um, I forget who owns it, but it wasn't like YC's own building, I don't think, even at the time. You know, Paul Graham, PG was still the one making chili. Um, you know, Jessica would be there. Jessica was actually, I think Jessica was pregnant with her first kid the, the year that we went through. Um and it was just, it was a great experience for me, partly because, you know, I came from academia. So like you said, I, I, I got my PhD in, in, in the UK, but the reason I moved to the US is because I was a, a visiting professor at Cornell in computer science for a couple of years. And it was at Cornell, I realized like, okay, academia is really not for me. Like it doesn't fit my personality very well. Um, <clears throat> and then I left and, and really like it was, it was being part of YC that sort of gave me this instant network in the Silicon Valley. Um, so, so for me, it was extremely helpful. It's, 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 it remains and is one of my main networks still is sort of Y Combinator. And obviously now it's, you know, it's, it's, um, it's thousands and thousands of alumni, which is an extremely powerful network, uh, to be part of for sure. I think, I think that's a large part of why, why people do it. 
Um, and, and it was great. I mean, I, I have a lot of love for YC. Um, I actually dodged the wealth bullet by, by not, you know, cause I did the, uh, I did, I did in my batch was the same batch as Airbnb. And, uh, I, I turned down becoming employee number one <laughs> at Airbnb cause I was working wow. on my own thing. Um, so it was great for me. I mean, like we started tiny seed and it's sort of like, it's, it's, it's a different path than YC, but I still have a lot of, a lot of love for YC. Like, it's just like, it's, it's a different path it, the way that I think about it. Like if you're going to go into YC, then really you, your goal should be to, to IPO, like to really go for a massive outcome. That's, that's sort of what they're optimizing for. And, and what we realized and, and really the reason why we started, you know, uh, we started tiny seed almost a decade after I went through was that, you know, we, we, we wanted to explore whether there was a different path where it was like, okay, the outcome isn't necessarily IPO. It's this other path. Um, and so that's how we ended up starting tiny seed. Yeah. 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 And yeah, tiny seed is definitely a big differentiation, you know, and, and different value proposition than basically 99% of the accelerators out there. Right. Sure. It's a very nice kind of like, Hey, if you're a bootstrapper and you might not necessarily want to, you know, IPO or grow at all costs, come to tiny seed. And it's, it's very cool. Um, yeah. So before, I guess, jumping into tiny seed and, you know, maybe listening also how, how that evolved and why you decided to also like, you know, raise funds for that. Um, why did you, after successfully exiting your first startup in software, um, decided to do an M&A boutique called Discretion Capital. Yeah, so it was it was sort of up and down. So you have to understand, like my exit to Google, like it was mo this was 2010, and so when I did YC, there's another point about you know I was talking to a friend of mine who's a who's a VC still and was a VC in 2009, and he remembers going to our demo day in winter 2009. And he was telling me, this is only like a couple of years ago. He said, you know, at the time it was, the big question was if anyone was ever going to even write a single check, because this was after the 2008 crash. And so things were very different, oh, yeah. you know, like, so, mm -hmm. so our, our acquisition or the acquisition of my company was mostly an acqui hire of my co-founders. So I didn't make a ton of money, even at the time, A is an acqui hire, which doesn't make a ton of money. And, and B, it was mostly an acqui hire of my co-founders. So, so he, he sort of moved into Google versus I didn't. Uh, and so really what mm -hmm. happened after that, I was like just bumming around and we, we worked on the iPhone. Uh, I, we built an iPhone app for uh, as part of YC. And so I ended up doing a bunch of iPhone consulting, um, mostly doing prototypes for y other YC companies and, and other startups with money. I got really, really sick of that. And then so basically ended up building uh, App Aftercare, which was a, which was a app maintenance service. So we basically charge you fifteen hundred bucks a month, companies fifteen hundred bucks a month to look after their instrument and look after their iPhone apps for them. And then I sold that in twenty sixteen ish timeframe, and, and really like just sort of bummed around. I, I had you know I, I wasn't making a, it didn't make a ton of money, but it was like I didn't have to really work for a while. And so really what happened was. I was helping, so we just bought a place up in the mountains here, and I was helping my wife set up a flower farm up in the mountains. And then a buddy of mine from Chicago called and was like, hey, like, can you go to Florida next week? I was like, why would I want to go to Florida next week? He said, yeah, I'll pay you 20 grand for three days worth of work. I was like, great, I'll go to Florida next week. And it was basically doing just due diligence work for like old school private equity. So thinking you know, Chicago-based, East Coast-based, you know, private equity buying, specialty distribution, you know, specialty manufacturing, something like that. 
and it, they were doing tugins for e-com and SaaS stuff, mostly e-com to their existing businesses. And I was just doing DD work for them. Paid well, you know, interesting people, whatever. <clears throat> and that was really my first, ex, you know, exposure to the finance world. Like, like I said, I have a PhD in computer science. I used to be a professor. Like, I, you know, finance wasn't right. something that I was really into. And then actually, you know, you get to know the private equity guys. And one time, actually what happened was, I think we were, we were at the bar, we we're going for dinner or something like that. And one of the private equity guys was like, hey, man, like we pay for deal flow. And I was like, you just said words that I don't know what mean. What does that mean? <laughs> And he was like, well, you know, like if you make an introduction and like we buy the company, we'll give you a cut. And I did the math. I was like, wait a minute. So like a, an introduction, you're going to end up paying me like hundreds of thousands of dollars for just for an introduction. And he was like, yeah, I was like, OK, so I did that. Um, so I did a couple of buy side deals. And really what happened was this is right. 2016, 2017 time frame. Um, people started just reaching out. Like I said, I have two big networks. So it's like MicroConf and we saw the bootstrap software world and YC. And people obviously were getting, you know, starting to get more and more inbound from private equity, software private equity looking to buy. But people didn't really know. It's a very opaque still. It's a very opaque market. And so people didn't know, like, are these good buyers? Is this even a good price? I don't know. Like, so people just started reaching out. And I would give them my opinion. I'd be like, this is what I'm seeing in the market. You know, this is a good offer. This is a kind of a terrible offer. Like, these are good buyers or these guys are going to, you know, you know, they're going to fire everybody and, and outsource it and just milk it for cash flow. So one time I was telling this to one person, I was like, this is a terrible offer. This company, this firm is, is famous for like firing all your domestic staff and just outsourcing it. So that's what they're going to do. Um, mm -hmm. And he was like, well, can you help me get a better offer then? And I was like, yeah, I think I can. So that's really how I started discretion. It, it was really just me at the start. And, and again, with my technical background, I wasn't about to, I mean, I keep joking, like the only way I could get a job at an investment bank is if I started my own. So that's sort of what I did. And then I ended up basically being like, okay, well, I can't afford to hire like four MBAs out of Harvard to sit on PitchBook and look for deals and all that stuff. So I ended up building basically technical infrastructure to keep track of, you know, who were all the buyers, software buyers in the world, what are their portfolios, who were the people involved in the various deals so that, you know, what we're world class at that like one to 10 million ARR still is, is like, is placing, basically figuring out like, where do you fit in? to the portfolios of the larger private equity funds. That's 60, 70% of our deals because those guys, they pay strategic multiples or, or semi-strategic, in some cases better than strategics. Um, so that's really how that started. Like I ended up doing, you know, basically taking the technical approach. And I, I also found that a lot of founders, like they responded well to having a banker that, well, so first of all, like if you're dealing with the bigger banks, you're going to get some junior guy who's like 25 straight out of like an MBA program. who doesn't, you know, doesn't know any SAS metrics at all versus like talking to me, people were like, Oh, you're actually, you actually know what you're talking about. Like you understand the metrics here and who the buyers are and all that stuff. So, so people responded yeah. well, and that's really how discretion started. Got it. That's a fascinating story. Yeah. You know, I did a bit of the opposite. I went from being an investment banker to being a, becoming a tech guy. Right. So, yeah, yeah. but I think, I think, I think, well, your, your, your order is maybe even better. So, um, oh, that's cool. That's cool. Um, so yeah, and you're hundred percent right. Like, I mean, if you, of course, if you initially, you know, you get to an investment bank, you talk to only the junior guys, uh, and then, you know, until you like sign, sign up the bank and, you know, start paying them a retainer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that's when you start getting the attention of the MDs 
Who's yeah, but not even that. Like honestly, like you know, yeah, we we compete. You know, we compete on on sort of two sides. So we compete on the lower end. We compete with the with the brokers that do everything. You know, like info products, e commerce, right. all this stuff. And like honestly, right. it's just a different game. So, and on the higher end, uh, we compete with the smaller boutiques. And like a lot yeah. of the time, we yeah. win deals because what ends up happening is, even if you're doing five or eight or ten million in ARR or whatever. The problem is like you might when they're pitching you like there'll be the two partners on the call and three associates and like four secretaries and all this shit until you sign and then it turns out yeah you're getting the junior guy they just signed up last year because you know they're used to doing deals at 100 500 million that's what they want to do like obviously that's that's where the big money is so nobody was really like fitting in that like that that you know one two to ten million in arr nobody was really doing a great job there um, so, so like the market yeah, was yeah, right yeah. for somebody who knew what they were doing. Yeah. And then obviously the industry focus allows you to, yeah, be super hyper-focused and yeah, know yeah. all the buyers out there and all the transactions out there and yeah. have like an amazing, you know, finger at the pulse. Um, it's interesting how you started with buy side advisory and then moved to sell side. You know, usually the buy side is like so hard to get, uh, that most people try to, you know, start with sell side and then go to buy side. Uh, in terms of mandates. Uh, but yeah, again, initially you had obviously the relationships um, and then, you know, the network. So that's very cool. In terms of, um, you know, I guess like sentiment out there, we obviously saw SaaS having a bit of a correction last year. Um, and then, you know, a lot of people are talking about like quite a good recovery already, uh, you know, the last two months. How do you see SaaS evolving this year, for example, compared to maybe last year? So <clears throat> the way that we saw it um, was maybe a little differently than I guess a lot of others. So we really saw the collapse super early in 2022. That's really when the market sort of tanked for us. Um, and really what was happening was the public markets crashed post Putin's invasion of Ukraine. And the 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 really what happened in that two to 10 million range was that a lot of our buyers um, quickly sort of abandoned buying tuck-ins for their larger businesses because the multiple compression was significantly higher at the larger stages. So if you were doing 50 or 100 million in ARR in 2022, you know, public markets were trading at four to six times ARR, your multiple compression was significant. Uh, at, at that stage, because you're the larger company, you're closer to being public. The lower end, two to ten, was like it was much more insulated from the market, the public market turmoils. So a lot of our buyers moved up market and just said, "We're not buying shit. We're just going to buy the on the small side. We're just going to buy the bigger, the bigger things." So for us, you know, we, unlike you, I don't have an, I didn't have an investment banking background, so I didn't know you could take retainers. So we never took retainers. We still don't take retainers. We just do success fees. So I was like, oh, well, this blows. Um, and then and then really what happened was, so so like because of that, our close rate, we're pretty picky about who we take on. Like we don't just take anybody and then hang around. And, you know, if we don't think we're going to get you multiple offers of where we think you'll transact, we just won't work with you. Like it's, it's just because it's a waste of our time. It's a waste of your time. And because of that, our close rate is quite high. It's like 75, 80% uh, success rate from the mandates we take on. And so, but like in 2022, that went from like that kind of rate down to like 10% because all the buyers moved up markets. So all the buyers were like, okay, 
uh, we're going to start buying 50 million, 100 million ARR businesses that are in distress right before the public market. So that's what happened a lot in 2022. So 2022 was completely dead. And then 2023, you know, it started to, to grow a little bit again, like things were going, but people, it was still, it was still, people were still far apart. So it was like in 2022, nothing got done, even at, at almost at whatever price, because there was so much uncertainty. In 2023, at least in the early stages, there was some movement, but there was still like a pretty big divide between, you know, founders still married to that, like, what can I get in 2021 type outcomes and the private equity buyer or the software buyers who were like, well, it, it's a new dawn, baby. Like, you know, <laughs> you're not going to get that kind of thing. So it felt like through 2023, the market improved. Certainly it helped, you know, that the S&P 500 or NASDAQ, or whatever, um, came back. Uh, multiples improved on the public markets. And so really like what we saw in 23 was the first half was still kind of rough. Like it was slow. People were like, yeah, maybe, I don't know. <clears throat> but but really in the fall last year, things started things started picking up again. Um, and certainly I think, you know, we're, we're not seeing, so I think it's it, it's sort of become, at least it was late last year, it's become like a market of two parts. It's like in 2021, everything sold, <laughs> you know? Like if you had a SaaS business above a certain rate, it didn't matter. Like churn was high. That's okay. We can fix it. Like, uh, oh, you know, growth is not that great. Don't worry. We'll turn it around. Like, the, you know, a lot of marginal businesses got sold. That was the time to sell a marginal SaaS business was 2021. And then, uh, and obviously the good assets were, were getting loads and loads and loads of offers. Like at some point we had like, I think we had 22 LOIs for one of the processes we run, which is high. Crazy. Put it that wow. way. Yeah. <laughs> I know. And then, um, but so in 2023, that's come back. And, but it is definitely like still a market. Of, like if you have a marginal business, it's still hard. Like the, the buyers aren't that interested in the marginal business anymore. But the good assets still are, are getting bids. And they're not, they're getting bids that are, they're not getting as many bids as they were. They're not getting 22, but they might get five or six. And like the, the highest value bids are, are about within range of where they were in, in like wow. maybe not 21, but certainly in 20. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So in essence, the market is already expecting some sort of repricing, you know, end of 2024 or 2025 to have to, you know, to happen basically, right? Like on the public market as well, if that's happening. Yeah, I think right, at the right? lower end, I mean, like you also have to understand, like most of the well-paying people and stuff, like the, the target buyers for us, like they usually, they own larger assets. So they're looking to do the classic buy and build, you know, private equity play. So they might already have an asset. So for example, we sold one to, um, like we closed on it last month and we sold a tuck into Blackstone, <laughs> you know? And so like for them, they took C-Vent private. We helped them. We sold a, a tuck into them and like, they just needed to win that deal because it made total sense for them, right? Mm -hmm. it, 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 it wasn't like a, it wasn't a standalone thing that they then thought that, okay, the market multiples are going to expand so that that in itself will go like a lot of the stuff that we do still tends to be tuckets because that's that's really like if you have an asset that's doing two to ten million mm -hmm. the people who will pay the post are either pure strategic so fortune 500s or they're the larger private equity that haven't have an asset where it where it makes sense to tuck you in um and that mm -hmm. that market is back for sure um what's what's not mm -hmm. back quite yet or, or it's back but like certainly multiples are lower are so the smaller private equity uh, buyers who are like, you know, buying it for themselves, like for their own platform. They want to buy something at 5 million right. and grow it. 
like that still is 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 hard um mm -hmm. although we're seeing a pickup on the you know the growth equity side where the minority buyers are coming in and still paying very good valuation so my view of 24 is that you know things it, it, you know as long as china doesn't invade taiwan <laughs> i think we'll be in good shape yeah 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 interesting and then i mean two two other questions uh one do you only focus on us deals and also us buyers as a universe or you know you probably still have like a decent network in the Nordics. Obviously, there are like, you know, the tech companies coming out of the UK, you know, continental Europe, you know, a few as well. Do you do some work uh, outside the US as well or uh, mostly US? Yeah, we do. Um, we certainly do. I actually don't have a great network in the Nordics, ironically, because I moved out of there straight after the army. So I was out of there by 19. So <laughs> my network in the UK is actually stronger than it is in the Nordics. Um, so, so yeah, we do, we do, we do mostly on the back. I mean, we do, we do all over. It sort of depends a little exactly on, um, you know, what makes sense. And and I say that just because, um, and we, we talked to founders in, in Tiny Seed about this. Like the fund, the fact is like most of the buyers are in the U.S. Like the most private equity buyers in particular and, and strategics are in the U.S. And they actually don't care so much about where the where the team is based, but they do care a lot where the where the company is 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 um, uh, is based. So, like, it, it, and and there is there are probably half the buyers that we deal talk with don't have a mandate. Their their, their LPs won't let them buy a, a a company that is not North America based. And so, what that means is that if you're not if you're European or Asian or South African or whatever. Your, your your buyer universe gets cut in half straight off the bat, um, and so so that that can be a challenge on the on the on the sell side. Um, and honestly, like I, I still think like to this day, I still think like a, like a good strategy from from the buy side is to go out and buy non US assets. So go buy Slovenian tech company or Swedish one or mm -hmm. South African one, and flip it into a US corporation, and then you're almost yeah. guaranteed some arbitrage. Because just the, the yeah. buyer universe is just larger, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, we, we do. I mean, I would say most of our stuff is ends up being U.S. corporations, but certainly uh, we've done we've done uh, found with founders at least founders in France, founders in South Africa, mm -hmm. founders in the U.K. Certainly founders in Holland uh, or the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. uh, trying to think where else Germany? No, I don't think Germany. So yeah, no, we do we do all sorts, but but it's mostly US, just because that's where that's where most of the most of the action is. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of let's say the AI trend, right? Like obviously there's a saying "software eats the world," and then there's another saying "AI eats software." <laughs> um, you know how is the sentiment, and what's the perception of some of the PE guys and some software strategics towards AI, right? Because you could argue that building a product will be easy in the future and therefore marketing might be even more critical in the future to win, win the race who will dominate a certain vertical, for example, um, you know, in a, in a SaaS category. So any, any kind of feedback there, what, what are the talks? <clears throat> so I'm a huge, huge, huge AI bull. I think it's amazing technology. I actually almost did my PhD in, in AI. I think it's fantastic. Um, that being said, like we, I think from the buy side, from the certainly the software private equity side, there's some wariness just because, 
it's there's a lot of froth in that market, even on the sort of bootstrap side. Like I was talking to one guy, um, and you know, he came in and he's like, Hey, I'm doing four million in ARR. And I was like, Okay, perfect. Like I want to sell it. I was like, sweet, that's right in our sweet spot, you know, let's talk. And I ended up not taking the mandate just because I didn't think that our buyers would be that interested because it was a nine month old business and it was churning like thirty five percent per month. You know, it was growing like crazy, but people weren't sticking around. And so so I think that's the challenge with a lot of the AI stuff that I'm seeing is that tremendous growth, like absolutely bananas growth, but not sticky. So people are trying things out, doing a one time thing and then sort of being like, eh, I don't know, like this is fine. Like, you know, you still need to build like a, a business effectively to, to build a, a, a quote unquote easily sellable business. You still need to, do, need to do the same thing. You need to build something that you're selling to businesses that people are using day to day it to run to make money to run their business like and if that if that if your differentiating factor is ai great but like you know a lot of these a lot of certainly a lot of the ai stuff that i see tend to be less b2b and more like at best like b2 prosumer maybe where it's like okay you know one time you know maybe a little bit but but the underlying if you look at the underlying SaaS metrics it's still kind of super high churn um, maybe fantastic yeah. growth, but very, very high churn. And like, there, there's one thing that I think, particularly like VC-backed startups don't understand, is like how um, sensitive to churn private equity buyers in particular are. Like, they, it's one of the key metrics. Like, you talk to some of these buyers, and they'll straight up tell you, like, "Hey, I'm not buying. My, I'm not allowed to buy my LPs to buy anything that's having like a net revenue retention sub, say, ninety percent." They're just not allowed to. Like they're just that's just not a thing. So if you're coming to me and you have an AI thing doing four million, but you're churning thirty percent of your customers or fifty percent of your revenue every month, you know, I say that's great. And if you can find a buyer, that's amazing. And you know, or maybe, you know, just work the cash flows for a while. It's it's a harder deal to sell just because the buyer universe just isn't there for those kind of assets in the same way. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. So Interesting point on the churn. Uh, I didn't actually know about how strict private equity is, you know, on that point. And I thought maybe, mm -hmm. you know, they have some like interesting value creation uh, going going on to reduce the churn. And, you know, they see that as, you know, a big value maybe driver in the future. Um, I spent a lot of time recently looking at various statistics. Obviously, there's like uh, Nathan uh, Latka doing um, kind of like a deep dive into what type of, uh, you know, ACVs on average uh, have companies who are 100 million plus ARR businesses. There's another exercise, uh, one of the partners at Point9, a German SaaS fund did, uh, where he also looked at, I think like 72 or something like that, uh, public businesses and counted how many of them have what kind of RPA, right? So average revenue per account which is kind of like a proxy yeah. for acv i guess so yeah. and it's really interesting because in in both let's say studies uh the conclusion is that it's mostly uh deer hunters elephant hunters right and you know let's say you know whale hunters but like mostly elephant yeah. and deer hunters and that's basically b2b high ticket right is that something you also see yeah. basically also on the smaller uh, kind of like deal size and revenue size yes i think so i mean sir it, yeah. it okay in terms of value yeah for sure 
I mean, and, and I think, you know, we see this on and advise people on this on tiny seed side as well. The fact of the matter is, if you're, if you're selling to an SMB market, you're going to have higher churn, people are going to stay a lot longer, a lot less, they're going to be uh, more price sensitive. I mean, just in natural, this, there's just a natural churn in SMBs that's hard to overcome. Like, so I keep telling the story with Shopify. Like, if you look at Shopify's uh, 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 public statements, like they're churning at, I don't know, five or 10% per month, just as logo churn from their customers. And it's because, well, people think they're going to become millionaires. They sign up for Shopify. They think they're going to be millionaires drop shipping out of China, you know. And they do that for a couple of months, realize they're not making any money and they shut it down. There's nothing that the software can change to make that be different. And so that is the reality of a certain kind of client base. If you're taking nine bucks a month from people who think they're gonna be millionaires, drop shipping things from China, they're gonna be disappointed, not because of your software, but just because of what they've chosen to do. And so the nature of SMB markets are such that that's kind of inevitable. And so if if you have a SaaS that's sort of selling mostly to that, that's churning in that range, you basically need to do what Shopify has done. Like Shopify doesn't make most of its money from dropshippers. Like that's just not how it works. It has, it almost has like a dual funnel where it's like, basically there's a bunch of people churning and, and trying a bunch of the small stuff, but they make most of their money from the larger accounts. If they didn't, if they didn't have like Shopify plus or whatever it's called, where they're charging $2,000 a month plus to the larger, to the larger businesses that are on their platform, Shopify wouldn't be worth what it is today. And I think that's true for a lot of SaaS companies. It's like, you can get to a certain level, but churn, particularly if your market and your offering is such that there's an inherent churn level there. In order to, like, you can get to one or two or three million maybe, but you're going to struggle to get to 10 or 15 or 20 without building out some sort of a, at least mid-market offering, if it's not true enterprise. Certainly, you need to stick to your customers paying you more. And, and to a large degree, that boils down to, like, are you creating enough value for these businesses that it makes sense that, that they can charge that you can charge them enough? That's what it boils down to. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Cool. And then, so let's spend a bit, you know, a bit of time on Tiny Seed. Then, uh, obviously, Tiny Seed gives you interesting data. It gives you, you know, interesting ideas. Obviously, also like deal pipeline in the future. Um, why did you, yeah, decide to to do Tiny Seed uh, in the first place? Yeah. So what happened was, so I started this question and realized pretty quickly that this is a, a pretty liquid market. Once you get past about a million in ARR, specifically for B2B SaaS, it's not true for, for other businesses in the same way or business types in the same way, I don't think, but for B2B SaaS, it was, and really like what we observed was like at the time, and certainly I still think still true. Like you, you saw that, like how to invest in startups, like actually Sam Altman, who was a, a YC president at the time. He put a piece out that said, you know, how to invest in startups. And one of his main piece of advice was like, don't ever invest in anything that can't be a $20 billion company. And like my observation was like, that doesn't really make a ton of sense because, you know, that's great for for that one path where it's like go as fast as you can and try to hit that. And that's the game. And my my theory and our theory was that specifically for B2B SaaS, because it's so capital efficient, actually somebody should be backing companies where like the outcome, like a, like a home run outcome is selling for a hundred million bucks. And, and the, basically what it boils down to is you got to come in at a reasonable valuation. You can't take too much dilution. So they can't be raising money every 18 months, like your standard VC thing. Um, 
but fundamentally, like a hundred million dollar exit is much more common than, than an IPO. So there's many more of them uh, than IPOs. And so that was the basis of it. It was like, okay, basically the way to think about tiny seed, it's like, it's like YC, but where YC is puts you on sort of the VC track to IPO, tiny seed puts you sort of on the, on the private equity track, if you will, to, yeah. to sell for, you know, hopefully 50 or a hundred or a couple of hundred million dollars. Yeah. 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 I mean, when I was in private equity, right, like the aggregate returns for the asset class of private equity were actually much better than the VC asset class. If you kind of like average right. out, you know, 15 years of vintages. And yeah. that's basically because you never have zeros, right? Like your worst performing asset might be like a 1.5 times money on money. Uh, and your yeah. best uh, performing might be like four times, right? Versus in right. VC, still a lot of zeros. Uh, and then, yes, maybe luckily 100x there. Uh, but that's right. very rare if you, you know, especially if you're not in Silicon Valley, for example, and don't have like the amazing deal flow. So yeah, yep. it makes a lot of sense. Uh, I guess like having the deal flow, having the experience being, you know, a computer uh, scientist yourself, et cetera. Why did you not do, for example, like a venture builder or like a venture studio focusing on, let's say, you know, high ticket B2B SaaS businesses instead? <clears throat> so I, I didn't because we didn't want to run a giant company that had was doing a bunch of different products, which is what to me venture studios smell like. Like it's you know I, I'm still I, I've seen them succeed the venture studios the venture studio model. I, it it seemed like a lot of work, and I also seen a lot of venture studios not succeed, um, for reasons that we don't need to get into. But but I have my theories, and I think like. Um, the reason why we didn't do it is in part relating to what you're talking about. So um, fundamentally, if you're going to do venture, like you still need to have, even though the private equity side, if you're going to do super early, like it's hard to do like a private equity type downside protection. Like it's not like private equity starts to get into two or three million. People are surprised at how, how, how serious DD is from private equity. If they've only ever done VC, like it's like, oh, due diligence, here's the money. Versus private equity is like three months worth of time, right? And like a proctology exam. Um, and really like for us, because we're super early, but at the earlier stages of B2B SaaS, we still need to rely on like the, a little bit of that power law, a little bit of the outlier. And like fundamentally, a big part of our thesis is you need to make enough bets. Like because the more bets you make in a power law outcome, the, the better your expected outcome is. And so fundamentally, that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to back a lot of businesses and yeah, we think the failure rate will be significantly, and so far it is, significantly lower than VC, but we still need to make enough bets so that that 50 million, that 100 million, that $200 million outcome, we're more likely to get those. And like, mm -hmm. we, look, we've invested in over 150 SaaS companies in the last few years. And like, we couldn't do that in a venture studio model. It's just not possible. Makes sense, makes sense. And then having a fund as part of your tiny seed accelerator yeah. do you invest in all of the companies finishing a cohort yeah. or are you selective because obviously if you don't then that's already a bad signal for anybody who would you know invest if you don't invest in one of the you know your so, own so i days. before i start before i started an accelerator i didn't realize that people would like run an accelerator and not put any money in, into all the companies that to me seems completely insane and i still think that's completely insane and so, yeah, I mean, our our fund, and I there was some other guy who was confused about this. I'm like, no, 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 like it's an accelerator, but it's a fund. It's the same thing. Like we're, we use the funds to invest in every company that comes into the accelerator. That's, that's part of the game. 
Uh, so everybody gets an investment if they're part of things. Okay. Yeah. So you, you, I mean, you're the exception. Yeah. You, you might have been confused, but then, you know, the, the normal accelerators actually don't actually a have a fund until, you know, recently, maybe last four or yeah. five years. And then yeah, B uh, are quite picky uh, where, where they invest. Um, very cool. So um, in terms of maybe, you know, coming to an end here, um, what are the critical lessons you could share with SaaS founders out there? Critical lessons. I mean, there's so much stuff, but I think like crucially, like you have to figure out how to make enough money from the people that you provide the most value from. That's the sort of the alpha and omega for a sustainable business. Like you're not going to make up in volume if you don't have people that are willing to pay you a significant amount of money and keep paying you a significant amount of money for an extended period of time. Like if you're not creating enough value for your best customers that you can do that, you're, you're just not, you're going to stall out at some point, probably before you like. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Would you also agree that the number of bootstrap founders and founders who want to only raise at a much later stage than before will increase? Yes. I mean, I mean, it's, I think like, really, like it comes back to the AI thing. Like I think, I think the AI stuff is really hard to predict, like what's going to happen. Um, you know, certainly it feels like since we started, which is now half a decade ago, which is, makes me feel old, but like, certainly like the indie hacker thing has just gotten stronger and stronger and stronger. I will say that like some of the indie hacker stuff is starting to get a bit like I'm starting to get like drop shipping, you know, in the 2000s, 2010 vibes here. People are just like, I'm just going to do this. Like, it's just me. I'm never going to hire anybody. AI is going to mean I'm going to be a billion dollar business by myself. And I'm looking at their underlying business and it's like, yeah, but you're churning 25% per month and you're charging $9 a month. Like just, there isn't enough people in the universe to, to actually have that happen. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, that's what it, that's what it boils down to for me. I know. Amazing. Look, it's been super interesting. Thank you so much for your time. And yeah, hope to see you in Atlanta in April. Yeah, absolutely. Look forward to it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for sticking around. In the show notes, please go to neoptima.com slash SaaS podcast. Otherwise, see you at the next episode. Bye.